welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spirabauer. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so excited you're joining me today for our podcast entitled The Future of Student Success. We have two really incredibly brilliant folks joining us from two incredible organizations, David Helene from Equity and Rochelle Sinclair from One Goal. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Really glad that you're here. Also, uh, you two, your organizations have actually collaborated, worked together in the past. I'm excited for that to unfold in real time since this is the first time you've been together since that collaboration. Is that correct? That is true. Who knows what will come out of that? I know. The pandemic kept us apart a little bit, so I'm excited to reconnect uh, during this time together. Likewise. Oh, isn't that the truth? Well, I think it's probably a good time for each of you to just give a little bit of a bio of yourselves, your organizations, without getting too heavy. Tell us a little bit about your life's work and why you're doing it. So, David, I introduced your name first, alphabetical, easiest that way. Why don't you tell us first about yourself, your journey in education, in and around education, and the work that Equity is doing? Yeah, happy to. Well, our work at Equity is focused on uh, narrowing equity gaps in post-secondary completion while acknowledging that basic needs challenges and financial insecurity is the number one reason that students drop out of their post-secondary journey. So, you know, back in the day, in the early days of equity, uh, we were focused on the access to success journey for students and trying to help navigate some of the pre-college financial planning exercises to try to avoid some of the basic needs challenges that derail students' journey. And in doing that work with amazing partners like One Goal, we realized that for many students, just based on some of the structural policies that we've put in play, access to the safety net will be an inevitable need no matter what students do. So we did shift our focus in 2018 to how do we streamline access to the safety net for students with a focus on emergency cash flows. So today, equity is focused on application, decision, payment, and reporting for post-secondary partners with the goal of making emergency aid programs faster, more equitable, and more effective to keep students enrolled, but not just students. It's the students who disproportionately experience these challenges, which traditionally are Black students, Indigenous students, and Latinx students. So that is what we do at Edfi, and that is why I'm here and why I wake up in the morning and go to work. I appreciate that introduction for many reasons, but I think it also helps our listeners to expand today's topic, which is the future of student success. Many folks listening in may be thinking like, okay, well, how do we get kids good grades or how do we get them to pass tests? And what I was really hoping would come out of today's podcast, just not to set the bar too high, is us broadening folks' understanding, ideas, and thoughts around what is student success? What are the many facets that comprise student success? So David, thank you so much for leading with that. I think that was a really helpful start for everybody today. Of course. Rochelle, I would love for you to do the same now, please. Or Rochelle Sinclair, I'm the executive director for One Goal in New York. At One Goal, uh, we envision a world where every young person can achieve their dreams. And for us, we believe the greatest pathway to get there is through a post-secondary degree or credential. 
We are a uh, national college access and completion organization. I emphasize the completion because we want to make sure that students not just get there, but they also complete at the end. And essentially what we do is we partner with schools to help them identify uh, students, the students actually that we believe uh, have the most potential but are often underserved, get the resources and supports that they need so that they can transition through and navigate this really challenging process in terms of getting to college and getting the skills that they need to be successful through college, college or other uh, degrees and certificates as well. And so that is essentially the work of One Goal and uh, what we do. Um, I've been at One Goal now for about five years and in the education space for about 10 plus years, but actually started my my career off in the for-profit sector and just had this calling um, because uh, a lot of what David was, was sharing is that like there's so many things that I was a recognition that students needed and I wanted to be sure that I could really figure out how to be a part of that solution. Rochelle, I think in sharing one goal, you've also for our listeners really unlocked, you know, a, a complimentary part of the conversation to what David shared, which is why I think you two will be fantastic as, as co-panelists today, which is talking about what it takes for college access and completion, right? The and completion part there. Again, David highlighted one component of it, but through our conversation, I think we'll highlight quite a few more. Uh, David, you share a similarity in your journey in that you began in for-profit as well, and you felt this calling too. Can you just speak to that for a moment for, for folks, because perhaps we'll have some for-profit folks who are suddenly compelled by our stories and get more folks involved in these really important movements. And I, I say that with a little bit of a laughter, but I mean with sincerity. Yeah, of course. The legal status of an organization doesn't define how mission-oriented they are, but that said, it can go south if the leadership and folks at for-profit organizations are not committed to the work. And just to be really clear, equity has really clearly defined values, which make sure that as an entity, uh, we do make sure that we're narrowing equity gaps and achieving our mission. I actually went from nonprofit to for-profit. And back in the day, and I guess 2013 is the day because 2019 to 20 or 2020 to 2022 feels like 15 years. But I started a nonprofit organization called Unify Scholars that was doing high touch programmatic work to help students with financial planning. And it was a very narrow sliver of the unbelievably holistic approach to what an organization like One Goal has been doing. So we were focused only and exclusively on helping students uh, sort of map out a 10-year financial plan for college, right? Which is a really ambitious uh, sort of project. It requires a distillation of a lot of disaggregated, complex um, data sets. And, you know, in doing that work, realize that perhaps there was an opportunity to create a streamlined and automated tool that amazing organizations like OneGoal and others uh, could use in the classroom in a way that was way more impactful than what an organization like Unify Scholars was doing. So that was the impetus to start equity, you know, in the early days, we realized that you know, like I said, for us to achieve our mission, we needed to acknowledge that this is not an individual problem per se on the financial side, it's a structural one. And that for us to make the biggest impact, we were going to need to take a different approach, right? So we were so grateful to work with One Goal and be a part of a student's journey in that program. But again, equity was touching only a very small piece of the puzzle. And One Goal's two and three model is taking a much more holistic approach than what we were doing in the access space, sorry, access to success space, I should say. So that was sort of the impetus for nonprofit to for-profit and also the shift of our models. Yeah, I appreciate that transparency and the highlighting of how mission work can be aligned in a variety of different sectors. Rochelle, as you're as you're hearing this and you're you're reflecting on your own 
own journey in education. What was that changing moment for you? Full disclosure, Rochelle and I worked at a charter school in Harlem together back in the day. So I feel like I have a little bit of an edge knowing her, her backstory, but you know, this, you spoke to the calling and, and the work and, and we'll get, we'll get into the work in just a moment, but just for more contextualization, like, do you mind talking about like, what was that light bulb moment for you and why specifically this, this college to and through process is, is so powerful? For me, I don't even know if it was like a light bulb moment, but like kind of like a, a dimmer that kind of like slowly increased over time. And so my, my story kind of goes back to my own personal experiences when I was in schooling myself. And so I went to, I grew up in the Bronx and I went to public schools from kindergarten through eighth grade um, and then had a really wonderful opportunity to attend a boarding school uh, in Connecticut for high school. And so somehow uh, this you know young 12 year old girl like ended up at a small all girls uh, boarding school in, in Middlebury, Connecticut and had what was it a fantastic academic experience. Um, it was so rigorous and challenging and I was so excited. But socially, I think it was just also really difficult for me in terms of finding my footing. And I remember the whole time I felt like, wow, like I really wish I had this in my neighborhood and in my community and feeling, you know, like at, at, at my core that this was just unfair, right? Like this was unjust and I wanted to do something about it. I think at the time, the greater calling was to be a businesswoman. And I think that is how I then, you know, took the pathway to being a consultant for a number of years and went to business school and, and did that path. But as I mentioned, like that calling just was, it just kept coming to me, right? And so I thought about ways that I could do it, whether I was volunteering or if I was, mentoring or tutoring and, and doing different things in the space, but really realized that I thought I could use my skill sets to like really make this my career and my life work um, and not just something, you know, I was doing on the side. And so that is how I entered into, into this space and into doing this work in terms of thinking about how do we create an opportunity or how do we create spaces where all students have this opportunity, right? It's not just for a select few, but it's really for everyone. And I think as it relates to the college piece, I just think you know, college was like such a definitive moment in my life, right? And I think about like all the supports and that I needed to be successful and all of the people that helped me get there and knew I didn't do it alone. Just really spoke to me that thinking about how can we make this true for, for all of our students, right? For all of our New Yorkers, but really all of our students across the country that are really not receiving receiving that opportunity. And so that is what really speaks to me in terms of making sure that students are getting what they need. So uh, there's so many pieces of it that can use support that are broken um, and that fundamentally, like there's many solutions that we can put in place. And so really the question is like, how do each of us play a role in thinking about like, what is it that we can do to help students get even, you know, more and more steps closer to that finish line? Yeah. And Rochelle, just to pick up on something that you mentioned, I mean, you said like your passion to serve all students. And one of the things that's always spoken to me about one of those models is there was an early focus on students with like a, you know, below a 3.0 GPA, right? And that's pretty uh, uncommon for a lot of nonprofit college access organizations, which focus only on sort of, you know, the low income, high achieving paradigm of students when it's critical that we solve for the success and support of students who are not necessarily at a 3.0, right? Because community colleges, open enrollment, regional public institutions, right? Uh, public institutions broadly, like those are the economic development engines of the next generation of the US, right? And that's really, we need to make sure that students are 
fundamentally set up for success where they are going to be battling the types of financial issues like that inequity addresses. I think we spend so much time in popular media talking about such a narrow slice of post-secondary institutions when most of the economic growth and like what the future of the labor market is going to look like is happening elsewhere. So I think that's a really important point that I just wanted to piggyback on. There are a thousand directions I want to go right now with this conversation and I'm, 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 as often as the case, finding, you know, a couple that are sticking out to me. So, so let's talk about this at a broad level, right? So when we talk about success in two-year institutions, four-year institutions, certification programs, what does that mean, right? Because again, I think a lot of listeners are going to say, oh, they, you know, pass their exams, they have high GPAs, but that's not what we're talking about. So in each of, from each of your vantage points, what are we talking about when we say success? Yeah, I mean, I can jump in. I mean, one of our partners at Equity is Dr. Sarah Wilder-Grab, and Sarah is the founding director for the Hope Center for College Community Justice, uh, which is the nation's leading advocacy and research center around the issue of college affordability and basic needs and security. And, and Sarah often, you know, from a pedagogy standpoint, wants folks to remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And self-actualization, of course, is at the top, but you can't get there without provision of basic needs as a starting point. And you know, for us, that is a critical piece of this puzzle is seeing and acknowledging that students' basic needs like food, like housing, like transportation are met, but that is just the starting point, right? So Edry focuses very exclusively on these issues and we will continue to do so, but student success also is composed of academic supports, thinking about learning pathways, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, that students have the right uh, credential mapping and how they're taking courses. So it is a very holistic process when you're talking about student success. Equity focuses, of course, on the fundamental foundational building block of just making sure that students quite literally are housed and not starving. But there are so many other components that I know that, Rochelle, you touch on in one goal and one goal has been supporting students around for a long time. So, you know, we, we take on one piece, but one goal is taking on a few others. I know that Rochelle, you probably have a lot of perspectives here. I mean, I think what you shared is so important, right? The fundamentals about what 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 young people need or what people in general need to, to survive and thrive. I mean, I think Haley, to your question specifically, when I think about success, I'm thinking about completion, right? Getting to the finish line so that you can find a career um, and something that is going to lead to a family sustaining wage, a life out of poverty. Like that's really what we think about when we think about the work that we do. Um, and I think, you know, the, the point is so students, right? It's like, it's not just about academic success. You know, I think about the, the challenges that students are facing as it, as it, as it relates to getting to completion. Um, and academics is just one small piece of it, right? Like there is, there is that, that part where students do need some, you know, deeper literacy skills and need some supports in, in those areas to kind of get through those, those courses. But I think for us, what we've named as the number one or what we've seen as the number one challenge or obstacle for students uh, are, are, is financial, right? And so, like, there are many things that are barriers for students to even complete a degree because uh, they have an inability to pay their their bills or they're thinking about their account balances. There's so many things that they're trying to figure out as it relates to being, uh, you know, you know, like self-sustaining adults, right, at this time, or, or folks that are responsible for their families and, and making sure that they have the, the rent and the bills that they need to get paid. Um, and so that is one big component. But the other pieces are we're recognizing that there's like also this like big social and emotional need, right? Like students need to feel a sense of belonging on the campuses that, that they are at. 
they need to believe that there are people there that are rooting for them, that care for them, that are going to help them navigate this journey. Um, they, they're going to have to recognize that how uh, these systems weren't necessarily set up for them to be successful, especially when I'm thinking about the students that we serve, which are, are generally first-generation students, students that come from low-income backgrounds and students of color, right? And so that is, that is also a big barrier that students are facing. And then the last thing I would say is like, like this kind of college knowledge piece or like, you know, how to navigate the system, you know, when it's like, hey, you actually need to go talk to the bursar about this thing because um, that, that is the right department that's going to get you the information that they need. And students don't necessarily understand so many of these like very intricate policies and things that are put in place for them to, to be successful. And so when we think about it, we also try to think about it in that holistic way in terms of how do students therefore think about all of these pieces as they are trying to make decisions and get to what is their own goals and their own dreams and really thinking about how can we set them up to identify where those resources might be or where they can find some answers or support to getting there because it's the challenges are, are, are so many and can come from so many different places and often overlap and intersect in so many unique ways. And, and that's really how we are, we're helping them think through this path to success and, and all of the varied ways that they need to get there. This isn't a small problem. So like, as I'm listening to you both, this is a pervasive systemic issue that we're talking about here. I'm wondering about the scalability of the type of support that, that each of your organizations are providing. Like, how do you think about doing this at scale in a, in a, in a manner that is repeatable uh, to, to continually, hopefully first we fix the system, not hopefully. We're working actively to fix the system. There are many, many efforts on, on each of your organizations, I know, but, but yeah, I, back to the original point, like how do, how do we make this repeatable and scalable? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, specifically on emergency aid, I mean, we've been really heartened to see that in the past couple of years, you know, Congress has invested $32 billion in this type of effectively public benefit program, right? And one of the challenges to your point, Haley, you mentioned the word scale, institutions are not designed to do this at scale. If you look at status quo programs, uh, it's often taking institutions 13 days post-application to get money to a student, right? Which if I have an emergency and need to pay a bill or else my like utilities are getting shut off, like I can't wait 13 days. We have fundamentally been built for scale. Our decision-making framework allows us to get cash in hands to students within 25 hours of application. And we've done this for over 100,000 students, totaling about $100 million in aid dispersed in the last 12 months. So that is sort of the framework within which we operate. But to me, you can't do this work at scale unless you're resourced, right? So one of the things that was really great among the many, 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 many things in the Build Back Better bill is that, you know, there was a first investment that was proposed for what's called a college completion fund, right? And that fund was literally meant to give particularly community colleges money to resource campuses so that they had dedicated resources for explicit student supports that are pursuant to completion, right? And that's sort of the other thing. There's sort of the micro practice of like, how can we improve the status quo? But then there's the macro of how do we continue to provide more money behind these programs to make sure that we actually can do this work at scale? Because what we see is like so many institutions are trying to re-engineer themselves as piecemeal social services organizations in a completely under-resourced way, which is, you know, is God's work. And, you know, thank God for these different uh, student support representatives who are bending over backwards to do 11 jobs. But when we operate, we think about how do we use our programmatic data to advocate for more resources at a legislative level uh, to make this more scalable. So 
that is sort of how we think about the scale problem. Kelly, I hear this question and I'm like, ah, oh, are you looking at my strategic plan? Like, are you, you know, are you in this conversation? <laughs> I promise I'm that? not. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I mean, I think that it, like that is a big question for all of us, right? It is not just about doing this for for some, although I think that is a part of it, like doing it for some and making sure that there's a proof point. But it is like, how do we then continue to grow and grow? And I think, you know, I think one thing I've recognized. I mean, I mentioned one goal is a national organization, and we're, you know, in, in six major regions across um, the country and, and, and starting to develop some um, statewide strategies as well. When I think about the work that I do specifically in New York City, you know, we are the largest school district in the country. There's, you know, over a million students here that need to be served. And when I think about, like, my very small but mighty team, I'm like, I don't know if one goal is the solution to address the systemic problems that we're seeing. However, I do believe that we can do two things. One is that proof point um, that I mentioned. And so I think that there's some things that we can do to, to demonstrate, like, it's possible, right? It is possible for students to get the resources and supports that they need. And not just, I mentioned, not just the, the highest achieving students who uh, are likely going to be on that path anyway, but really thinking about this mighty middle, right? There's a number of students that have a lot of potential and can have uh, incredible futures if just given the support that they deserve. So one is this idea of being a proof point, but then two, I think we, we really are starting to think about, and, and David was saying this as well, is, is the work that it takes as it relates to advocacy and thinking about uh, policy, right? And so although there might not be things that we can directly impact, I think that there are things that we can directly influence. And it's really thinking about how do we think, think about like these greater structural um, places where we can we can make that impact, right? And so, you know, there's, there's things that are happening at the federal level uh, with like, you know, doubling the Pell Grant, right? Or, or, you know, like a lot of the changes that we can make to make sure students are getting more and more aid. Um, or there's things that can be happening more locally, right, with our, you know, administration here that's, you know, a new chancellor and a new mayor and thinking about, like, the university system that's here as well. Um, how can we help them, like, create new policies and structures in place to really help support students in this pathway and uh, trying to have a voice in those conversations because we've seen what students need and believe that we can, along with students, can help represent those needs to this, uh, this, big, uh, this big system. It feels hopeful to hear you both talk about this because I think that this this topic of how broken our system is can feel very pessimistic. And I know that the work you're doing is in pursuit of hope and optimism and help and support. But hearing the framing of the future for your own organizations and, and the important work of policy, it does it does like leave a little tingle on my spine because it, you know, the, the crisis has only ex been exacerbated throughout the pandemic. The past two years, I mean, David, you, you likened it to, I don't even know, two decades, three decades, a thousand decades, but it has felt for me, a person of, of significant privilege and, you know, financial security felt challenging beyond challenging. So let's talk for a second about what happened to the state of affairs in the past two years. How has this crisis, you know, widened or become more urgent? Over the past years, obviously, the the statistic you gave just a moment ago, David, the hundred million dollars of allocated financial aid, it, it speaks to the significant like size of this crisis. But just how have the past few years changed your work, your organization's work, your focus? I know both of you probably have points on on to share on that. Yeah, I mean, my first thought here is that 
certainly COVID has made a lot of things worse, right? That is a statement that's probably uncontroversial, but a lot of the fundamental issues and root causes were there even before the pandemic. So issues like food insecurity, housing security, like these are not new problems. I think the only silver lining of this pandemic is that people perhaps are now accepting at a national level that these are real issues. Um, I think the ways that it has been exacerbated or worsened besides, you know, the tremendous chaos, the toll on mental health, which is now itself, a pen, you know, an, an epidemic, we're dealing with additional challenges like inflation, which is inherently a tax on, uh, you know, under-resourced individuals. The fact that we just gave a massive public benefit and now we're just taking it away, right? So things like the job tax credit and, you know, this emergency aid for students, which students are going to be looking for is not going to be there in the same quantity that it's there now, right? So my fear is actually like just sort of sweeping the rug under folks at a time when the need is as great as ever, but the issues aren't new. Right. And there are policy paradigms that we can point to. Right. There are policies in the Build Back Better bill that have been proven to work. Right. We saw that child poverty decreased last year uh, in the wake of a lot of stimulus checks that went out and child tax credits that went out. And you expect to see poverty go up, but it didn't. It went down. Right. So there are answers to difficult problems. I think the good news is we're talking about it and paying attention, but we have two very, very strong competing forces on each side of the aisle that are fighting for different things. Uh, and it becomes, you know, what is the expression of values for us as a country over the next few years and which direction we're going to go, right? But this isn't fundamentally new with regards to problems. I think it's just, you know, we're now, we see them now and you can't hide from them now. And then in many ways, it's just gotten worse. So, so real, so true. Um, the problems already existed uh, are certainly getting worse. I think one of the greatest fears that I've been having during this pandemic is that we end up with this like lost generation, right, of, of young people. I'm particularly thinking about the students that were graduating high school in 2020 and, you know, having to make this big, light, like major life transition, right? Like when you graduate high school and you go into college, it's just like, think about that moment in your life and how like major of an accomplishment that felt like um, and what, what, what that was like for students in 2020. And what we've seen and, and, and are continuing to see, and I think even the trends right now in terms of what we expect to see again for this upcoming uh, class of graduating seniors is that college enrollment is down, right? Especially for first time, you know, freshmen that are enrolling in school. Like we're seeing it across the board, across the country, like CUNY's naming enrollment is down um, here in New York. And that's a huge challenge, right? Because we know that it's very difficult when students don't even start on the path of a post-secondary program. It's very, very difficult for them to find their way back onto a path and then complete. Our struggle and the thing that we've been worried about quite a bit is like thinking about how do we support these students who um, are having to explore other opportunities, right, or think about other other ways or other things that they need to be doing instead of like really being able to invest in their own futures. And then what is that going to mean for us as a full society in 10 and 20 years when you have um, all of these young people that don't have the skills to compete in this this labor market, right? And that like, you know, all these jobs are unfilled. And so I really think about the the impact that we're seeing now. Like I think, you know, David like named all of them really clearly, right? In terms of the like 
the things that we're all feeling or the other things that um, many are feeling in terms of like the challenges that are happening. Um, but I'm also concerned about the, the um, what's going to happen for how all of us feel in the future because of what we weren't able to do for students when they needed it the most. You're naming uh, that that specific group age group of students were supposed to be stretching their wings, flying out, experiencing independence, solving problems on their own, and they didn't have it. And and I think we spoke a little bit earlier about the social emotional component of both college uh, success as well as I mean I could talk for days about social emotional being of students of all ages, but. You know, I think you're naming a really strong point here, Rochelle, about what the future holds for this particular population of, of kids and how we as a society need to probably or need to start thinking about this now in order to either provide the scaffolding and support or readjust expectations for what the labor market will be able to bear come the time when they when they're at the table for, for the conversation. Yeah, and I, and I also don't want to I mean, I'm I'm thinking specifically about those students that were transitioning at that time. But I also, I am, I am with you. Like I have a toddler and I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about him and like, you know, and like, you know, are you, are you, are very young people and how they've been navigating this time as well. And so I think all of those things we're not even going to be able to see for quite a while in terms of like, what has the impact been of living under these conditions in this time? Um, and so really thinking about like all of the supports that we need from beginning to, I mean, and me too, I'm raising my hand for like the adult supports that I, need to be navigating these times as well. But I think that there's just so much for us to be considering it as it relates to, we think about, you know, like, you know, I think all of this that we're talking about, we're like thinking about like a healthy society, right? Like, and that's really what we're, we're growing to. And it's not just about, you know, academic recovery that needs to happen because students have missed some, some, some classes or remote learning didn't really work for everyone. I mean, that's like small pieces of the puzzle, but I, I, I think that there's, there's so much that we have to consider as we think about like, making sure that all of us are in a good spot so that our future continues to look bright. And Rochelle, it's a really good point. You're, you're talking about what you need as an adult, and, and that's a really good way of highlighting that. The, the demographic identity of post-secondary students has changed dramatically from you know, how I think a lot of folks conceptualize it, right? And it's critical to support the transitioning high school student, um, but also I think many folks may be surprised to understand that about 50% of students now are actually adults, right? They're over the age of 25 and 25% of students has a child, right? So you think about caregiving for just, you know, parents who are working and have stable situations and how difficult that is. And then you think about that for a student, right? And that's 25% of the college-going population. So, you know, a lot of the issues that students are going through right now are, are consistent with what the broader population is doing. And it's just that much harder, right? Because you're also going through an educational journey at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Social emotional well-being for our entire society who has experienced the largest experiment of shared experience probably since world war ii right you, globally this is going to be an interesting time for some post-mortem by some researchers in the future looking at how how what our resiliency looked like how how we kind of overcame the challenges that we're talking about right now and some of the others we're not even mentioning i will eagerly read said research so Rochelle and David, I, I want to ask you, you know, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up a little bit, which makes me sad, but also, you know, you have to go back to this important work um, and you generously let your time to our podcast today. But I'm wondering about how, how you think 
what you think the future of student success is like what, you know, your idyllic magic wand worlds, what the future looks like, how we can fix the broken system, not just, you know, remedy the people who are living in it or support the people who are living in it or, or embrace the people living in it. But what would the, the system look like if it was fixed? I think one one big piece is that we change the definition of like the pathway to success, right? Like I think that is one of the key things that needs to change. I think right now it's like, you know, you go to high school, you graduate, you go to a good four-year college, you graduate from there, you get a good job, and there you go. Like you're on that path. And that really only works for a very small amount of our students, right? Like that, like that very straight line and journey only works for very few of our students. Really, like the path for, for our students looks a lot more windy and very different from that, right? And so a student might need to go to a two-year college and then transfer to a four-year college. A student might decide that they want to get a certificate in coding or UX design, right? And like that is a pathway to their future. A student might start college and then realize they need to take a break because of family concerns or, or something else that's coming up in their pathway, and then and the need to return, right? And so, like, those are a couple examples, but there's many, many others. And I think what we need to see is, like, and then uh, we need to embrace that that is what the pathways now look like. It's not just one straight shot, and we're going to support students through that. But we're supporting students through all of the myriad of ways that they might get to the end, right? Uh, I often liken it to, like, a GPS system, right? It's like the GPS is, is helping you get where you need to go. But if you're driving and there's a construction site or if there's a block party or there's a detour that you need to make, you got to be able to adapt. But we still want to get you there, but recognizing that the GPS can't keep telling you just to go straight, just to go straight. And so I think really when I think about the future and I think about the systems that need to change, it's like really identifying all of the possibilities that are, are, are available to students in terms of getting there and then supporting them through it, right? Being there to support them as they make those changes and all those those detours and those, you know, those changes come in, in their life um, to help them get there. Because um, so I think if we did that, then then we're seeing success no matter what, right? And, and, and so no matter the barriers that come in their way, they're able to, to, to do what they want to do, which is achieve their life streams. That is a fantastic metaphor. I have a perfect visual image of, of this, of this uh, journey you speak of. Thank you for, for illuminating it in that way. Yeah, I think to Rochelle's point, I mean, I think the GPS metaphor is a really good one. And, you know, I think the key point is making sure that folks can have that GPS in the first place, right? So this means investing in the resources that can help students navigate the twists and turns of their post-secondary journey. I think it starts at the K-12 system, right? Like right now, the ratio of college counselors to students nationally, I think is something like 500 to one. Michelle would know the numbers better than I am, uh, than I do. I think for low-income students, it's a thousand to one, right? So putting students in a position to be successful, to actually get those supports, entering the post-secondary journey, again, acknowledging that's about 50% of the college population, but then once they're there, acknowledging that they need to meet their basic needs and need uh, flexible pathways that can get them into successful uh, completion outcomes, whether it's uh, facilitating easier transfer, whether it's making sure that they are able to enroll in public benefits programs and uh, states like California, Oregon have literally invested in full-time professionals on college campuses that are fundamentally there to help students access critical basic need supports, right? So it's really starting to see what the actual impediments to a student success journey is. I'll give props to 
our local system here in New York, the CUNY system, right? They've just finally stopped putting holds on student transcripts for unpaid debts, right? And like, that's a huge burden. Like that actually literally can be the impediment to stop a student from completing, right? So it can be little things like this that have massive impacts. So it's really thinking about like, who the student is, understanding their identity, understanding what their sort of impediments could look like, and then uh, making sure that we're making investments that can support them along that journey. Absolutely. And I'm glad you shouted out that that recent change by CUNY, because I remember seeing it in the like the CNN ticker and being like, oh, <laughs> it was a it was definitely a moment. It just it seems so many things seem so logical. The fact that there are barriers in that way, just it, it it's sometimes mind blowing. Rashawn, David, I'm going to ask you a final question. Um, if you were giving advice to a student entering high school to help them get in the mindset to prepare for the next, well, I won't give it a time box because Rochelle, the journey could be so many different ways, so many different years, however many, but the, the future that, that helps them to and through college and, and to the journey they want to take on their own path in their own life, what advice would you give the, the student entering high school today? Yeah, I can start, although I'll do so acknowledging that Rochelle would have a better perspective than I would at this point, given that she's been closer to the K-12 student than I have. It's been a minute for me, so it's, I'm, I'm a little rusty. But you know, the big thing that I would sort of encourage is that um, you do not have to go to the sort of like, quote unquote, top 100s, right? And you shouldn't feel lesser about yourself if you don't, right? You should be optimizing for a post-secondary journey that puts you in a position to complete successfully, acknowledging the financial realities that you may be dealing with, right? I mean, if you are low-income high-achieving students, oh, by the way, like Harvard, Princeton, Yale may be the most inexpensive. You may not know that, but that's the reality, right? But for the mighty middle, as Rochelle is talking about, right, you shouldn't feel lesser if you're not going to one of these schools. And in fact, you should be optimizing not for quote-unquote fit, whatever that means, but setting yourself up for a journey that is going to put you in a position not to drop out with debt and no degree. And that's really something that I don't think gets enough credence in the conversations up front and is really the fundamentally the most existential thing when it comes to a completion journey later on is allowing a student not to feel lesser for not going to one of these schools and then also making sure that they have a very viable pathway to being successful. Um, I think I would share to an incoming ninth grader that it's just, it's never too early to think about your future. Um, and I don't mean that in like this, you know, high pressure way where it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, what school are you going to get to to get there? But just really like taking the time to explore and think about what do you see for success in your life in five years and, and 10 years and 20 years, right? And really being able to identify what that might look like. So that like, as you're, as you're doing this journey of thinking about, well, where am I going to go to school and what do I want to do that? It really feels true to who you are and like your values and your identity. Right. And so really taking that time to explore both yourself, but the world a little bit in terms of like what's out there for you so that you're really just, you're identifying a path that you want to be on and the, and the thing that's going to make you feel like you're achieving the thing that you want in the end. Right. Because I think it's so easy for students coming in to be like, well, I want to be X because somebody else is X. Or I want to do, or I think I want to do this thing or go to this college because that's where so-and-so went. Um, and it's really all about where the, what, what the student needs for themselves and where they need to be successful. And so 
really just take the time to like explore and learn and find a person, find a person, uh, a teacher, an adult, a, a parent, a auntie, an uncle, a cousin, a friend, someone that you can walk with you through this journey to help you along the way um, and that believes in you and that cares about you because I think we all need our people uh, to be successful and I think as, as you can find them early, then you know that you can carry them with you uh, through that season. How complimentary are those two thoughts, right? Like Both of you have shared uh, two different parts of the kind of journey for, for students, but really one message, like don't do what's right for other people. Do what's right for you. And I think that that is hard. That is an age when you are easily influenced by others. So it is a powerful and profound message that, that I think would be an important one for students entering high school to hear. Rochelle and David, thank you so much for coming on today's podcast and helping us redefine student success and talk about the many, many issues that affect students throughout the United States and really the world uh, and the important work your organizations are doing to support kids everywhere. Haley, thank you so much for having us on. David, it was so great sharing space with you again. I love your brain. I learned so much. And so thank you. Echoing, echoing it back right at you. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you both on today. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. I know my ring grew a thousand sizes, even though that's not scientifically how it works, but it feels that way right now. I hope yours did too. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com.